0: Hello, I'm Joanne Diaz, a poet and English professor at Illinois Wesleyan University.
1: And I'm Abram Van Ingen, an English professor at Washington University in St. Louis.
0: And this is Poetry for All.
1: This podcast is for those who already love poetry and for those who know very little about it.
0: In this podcast, we'll read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time.
1: Today, we thought we'd talk about another sonnet, John Donne's Holy Sonnet 14. Should I read that? Yes, please. Sonnet 14. Batter my heart, three-personed God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, or throw me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but oh, to no end. Reason, your viceroy, and me, me should defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you, and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again, take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me.
0: This has to be one of the most emotionally urgent poems I have ever read in my whole life. Uh, the, the levels of religious despair that this poetic speaker is feeling. This is a person in a lot of trouble. He feels like a prisoner. He feels like reason, which is God's gift to man, has left him and has aligned himself with sin he wants to be close to God, but he simply can't. So in all of the history of of English literature, I feel like this is one that really gives us a sense of how lonely it can be to feel this level of religious crisis and despair. Could you talk about what you see happening as the, the central problem or tension of this poem, Abram?
1: Yeah, so... Basically, you can get at that central problem pretty well if you isolate all the verbs. So this is a a sonnet loaded down with verbs. Knock, breathe, shine, rise, break, blow, burn, make, etc. It's just verbs everywhere. And yet only two verbs are ascribed to the I. And they come at line five and six, I labor to admit you. And then at line nine, dearly, I love you. So I labor to admit you and I love you. And that is the central problem of the poem. This is a poet who is desperate to be made one with God. I love you. I labor to admit you. And yet it's not happening. And you can get at that problem a little bit as well through the second line. So right now, basically what he's saying is Jesus is standing there very kindly at the door knocking on it. And actually... There's a whole tradition of images about this that come from Revelations 3.20, where Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And these were hung in churches. They were all over the place. And, and this tradition goes back a long ways with Jesus standing at the door and knocking. And he says, that's very polite of you. That's very nice of you. Except the problem is that I'm not opening the door. Mm-hmm. And the only way for you to get in is to break it down. Wow. And you, you, in a certain sense, have to obliterate me to make me new. Because this whole process of conversion isn't going anywhere. You gave me this faculty of reason to use, and yet it's allied with the enemy. It's making all the wrong decisions, and I'm doing all the wrong things. And so, uh, what I see happening here is is John Donne is playing off of exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans 7. So just to read that very briefly, I see this sonnet drawing on a whole tradition that Paul encapsulates at the end of Romans 7 when he says, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man am I? Who will rescue me? And that's Paul, and that is the poet here. Who is going to rescue me from myself?
0: Wow, Abram, that that passage from Romans is amazing. And I think you can agree that uh, if John Donne had written this poem in our creative writing workshop in the year 2020, we'd uh, ask him some questions about plagiarism,
1: would we not? Yeah, he's pulling directly on a Pauline tradition of conversion that requires, in a certain sense, two selves to wage war against each other and for one to be obliterated in order to be made new.
0: Oh my God, that's so powerful. What's poignant to me about this poem, but what is also maddening to me, is that, again, God gave man rational faculties. When we we say this, of course, I'm thinking of Genesis. I'm thinking of when he first created uh, man and woman. He gave them uh, rational faculties so that they could do all the things that make humans singular. Whether it's establishing law, as you say, making ethical good judgments. This is the thing that distinguishes us as God's children, right? But it's mm-hmm. as if uh, John Donne in this poem is is looking a gift horse in the mouth. He's saying, this yeah. gif- this gift you gave me is no good. It's like, I mean, what is he hoping to achieve in this conversation he's having with God? Obviously, the answer is he has no reason left. It's not there for him anymore. It's not working for him. And so that's why this poem feels so emotional, feels so urgent, and everything feels like a command to God.
1: Right. Emotion is going to be the solution in a certain sense to the fact that reason is now allied with the enemy. Um, And so what do you notice when you get into the sort of emotional dynamism and force of this poem? How does he achieve that effect of so much emotional power?
0: Part of it is, he, we know he's building upon a very vast sonnet tradition in English. We know that he's writing this poem in the midst of a tradition in which poets have written thousands of sonnets to objects of desire that are of this world. What's interesting is that he is addressing, instead of a a woman or object of desire, he is addressing God. So that's a really innovative thing that he's doing. Uh, The other thing that he's doing is he's working with the iambic pentameter line, and he's creating variations within that line. So that, Abram, when you read it a few minutes ago, I could really hear where he was speeding you up and where he was slowing you down. And one way he was doing that for you was with commas within the lines. And we call that sejura. Whenever there is a deep pause in a poetic line, that's called sejura. So look at just uh, lines one and two. Batter my heart, comma, three-personed God, semicolon. For you as yet but knock, comma, breathe, comma, shine, and seek to mend. So by inserting all of those commas, it makes me pause on the knocking, the breathing, the shining, and the seeking. All of which feel respectful, gentle, courteous. This is a New Testament God that is that is assuming a rat that he's encountering a rational being whose faith is strong, and that this individual let him in. But if you look at line two against line four, then you see a whole other set of commas and sejurah. So, as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, or throw me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. So look what he's doing. He's aligning line two and line four. He's saying, don't just knock, break the door down. Don't just breathe a little breath, blow right? Blow a crazy strong wind at me. Don't just shine mm-hmm. with your typical divine radiance. Burn. Burn. Give me a sunburn so I know you're here, right? Uh, don't just seek to mend me. Make me new. Destroy me and make me new again. This incredible violence suggests just how radical a transformation will be required for him to feel his faith again.
1: And just to build on the the way in which he's playing with the sonnet tradition to get at the emotional dynamism uh, of this poem, the twisting that he's doing, the despair and the hope and the longing are brought together by essentially having two turns back to back. So a sonnet tradition usually has a turn at line nine, sometimes at line 13. And here he has that turn at line nine, yet dearly I love you, that yet uh, indicates to us that he's got a turn in the poem and we expect a kind of resolution to begin emerging here and yet in immediately following that line in the next line he turns back yet dearly i love you but am betrothed unto your enemy the but there is a turn back on the turn that just happened and so you get that sense of a person almost twisting on the hook i love you but i can't love you i want to be with you but i can't be with you i want to do the good but i, I do the wrong thing Uh, And this is how he builds in that sort of twisting, warring self into the poem.
0: Could we backtrack just a little bit? I I love what you're saying about the turn. But in order for us to earn the turn, if you will, yes. we have to get through—and and Dunn is a metaphor-making machine, right? Like, it's never right. enough for him to just have one important metaphor in a sonnet. But one of the most important ones is the idea that the poetic speaker is like a usurped town, a town that's now been invaded and occupied to another do. And that another is sin, Right he should be this this sovereign state or this sovereign town that is independent and has free will thanks to god but has been invaded and is occupied by sin. And that's where the labor comes from. He labors to admit God, but it's futile. And then the other metaphor within the metaphor of the usurped town is the idea that his rational faculties, his reason, his free will, which is a kind of governor or viceroy in him, should be defending him but can't because it's been kidnapped or captive by sin. So then on top of that metaphor, we have this idea of this notion that he's betrothed. So he's not only been usurped, not only been occupied, but now he's saying that he's betrothed to sin, which is the enemy of God. Could, could you talk about what happens then in those final lines, the violence of the request for a divorce, for an enthralling, and for a ravishing?
1: Yeah, so I think it is important to note that violence because this is a kind of violence that we could all agree would not be good for one human being to do to another. Divorce me, take me, enthrall me, ravish me. These are not good things. Uh, And so part of the paradox of the poem are these are the things that he's begging God to do to him. And only God uh, can make these kinds of things good things uh, because these are the only kinds of acts that can overcome him enough To bring him to what he actually longs for which is union with god and so the end of this sonnet that the last six lines of this sonnet are their own sentence which shifts the metaphor again to this sense of um erotic union yes and of course that builds off of this whole sonnet tradition except now turned to God. And in a certain sense, he's building off of his own experience, uh, which he wrote plenty of erotic poetry before he became a minister. And he's basically using that experience and that sense of union to think about what a real spiritual union ought to look and feel and be like in his life. Uh, And so he's pulling these traditions together here at the end of this poem. That is
0: so powerful. And, you know, he has a sort of if-then conditional at the end of this poem. He's basically saying, unless you enthrall and ravish me, I will never be free. And yet, God doesn't speak back at the end of this poem. We have no, we have no sense that this ravishing will happen. So when you, when you think about the insight of this poem, why, if at all, would you commit such a thing to the page? What, what is it that John Donne is trying to achieve in the articulation of this poem, do you think?
1: I think there's a basic sense in which the desperation he feels is on the one hand very particular to him, and on the other hand, something that he is preaching about on a regular basis. He knows people going through this exact same experience. They are, on a certain sense, on a journey to God. They want God. They long for God. And the longing for God is the beginning of the journey to God. But the question is, how does that journey end and does it end and will it be consummated? And here it's an open question. It's left hanging. And again, if you think about the sonic tradition, it's often written to a beloved who the poet never actually gets with <laughs> in the end, right? So it is always this distant uh, sense of love, this love that is never consummated. Uh, and so even writing into that tradition creates almost a sense of despair behind this longing, will it in fact ever be consummated? It it's left uncertain by the end.
0: That actually is really helpful because it, it suggests to me that to feel truly feel a faith and a closeness with God is a struggle. It's a journey. It has many highs and lows and bumps along the way. But even knowing that could provide some kind of consolation to anyone who reads this poem. I find that very moving.
1: Yes. So Would you read this poem for us?
0: I would love to. This is Sonnet 14. Batter my heart, three-person God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, or throw me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like an usurped town, to another do, labor to admit you, but, oh, to no end. Reason, your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captive, and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you, and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free. are ever chaste, except you ravish me.
1: Thank you. For more on this poem and for some notes uh, for an image of Jesus knocking on the door of one's heart, please visit our website and please follow us at Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.
0: Thank you for listening.